You see, one of the greater challenges of some of the more known passages in the Bible is that we hear it over and over and over and over again, year after year after year. The shepherds, the wise men, Mary. And then what happens is every time we hear it, we become a little numb to it, and eventually it lulls us to sleep. So what we're going to do is we're going to make it really, really cold in here today <laughs> so you'll all stay awake, okay? <laughs> I know it's a little hot. It's cooling down right now. But that's one of the challenges of a very well-known passage. But another challenge is the fact that, you know, the Christmas story, sometimes passages like this holds a sentimental value in spirit, instead of a spiritual value. When it holds a sentimental value, it, we hear it and it touches our emotions, but it misses our heart. We hear the sentimental message and it touches our memories because we remember all the wonderful times we had family out and we had hot chocolate and it was snowing outside and it becomes like a sentimental memory to us instead of a spiritual experience that touches our lives. And until a message becomes an applicable spiritual truth, it remains powerless in our hearts and ears and lives. So it is my goal today to make the Christmas story more real to you and more applicable to you than you have ever heard it before. This is my goal. I don't know if I'm going to hit the goal, but I'm going to attempt to, okay? So I really want this to come alive to you theologically, doctrinally, spiritually, and in every way possible. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew 1, chapter, eight, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says, now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. <clears throat> when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, <clears throat> since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought it over... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's my angel voice. <laughs> For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You shall name him Jesus. For he will save his people from, not how, their sins. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah prophesies this, verse 23, and I quote, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Can everybody please say God with us? And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named her him Jesus. He named him, she named him Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. And we will look at every portion of that statement or that declaration, God, and then we'll look at the word with, and then we'll look at the word us, and uh, we'll exegetically consider those words and what it means to us. So let's start with the first, which is God. Who is God that is with us? 
Who is God that is with you who was born 2,000 years ago? His name is Jesus. Now, many people throughout humanity are very offended and off-put by the idea that God begot God because God cannot be gotten. If you speak to anybody from, the, from Islam, Muslim religion, religion, you will find that that's pretty offensive to them considering the idea that God was born and that He was in the form of man. That to them is borderline blasphemous. Yet here we have in the Bible very clearly the picture of God born through a virgin into humanity as a dependent baby upon those who will ultimately depend upon Him. The very ones He created now hold Him and He depends on them. And the Bible explains to it that this was God. It wasn't a great teacher. He wasn't just a great man. He wasn't just somebody with high morals. This was God Himself. Scriptures tell us this everywhere. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's right. And John 1.14 says, And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So here we see that the Bible, the Bible says that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, took on flesh, and started dwelling amongst us. This is God with us. John 1, 14. So according to the Apostle John, Jesus is God. In Acts 20, verse 28, here we see that the overseers of the church were given a mandate, and I want to read this mandate to you. And in this mandate, you will see that Jesus is God. It says it's like this. Shepherd the church of God, which He, God, purchased with His own blood. So here the apostle is speaking to us, overseers, and he's saying, you guys who are pastors of churches and elders in churches, you guys shepherd the church of God, whom He, God, purchased with His own blood. Who was that? Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is God. John 20, 28 says, of Thomas. Now, Thomas, if you remember, he was doubting Thomas, right? You have uh, all these different disciples. I mean, they were, they were a strange bunch. You had the guy denying Jesus. You have another guy betraying Jesus. And here you have Thomas, and he's just doubting Jesus. <laughs> and so what happened was, after Jesus rose from the dead, he basically just appears out of nowhere. In their midst, Thomas walks over to him, looks at his hands. He sees the nail-scarred hands. He sees his side. Thomas falls on his knees and he says this, My Lord and who? My God. So here we see the apostles saw Jesus as God. But the Bible clarifies this concept here that Jesus is God Almighty in many different ways. For instance... When Jesus forgives people of their sins, He walks around and He says, Your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. But think about what that implies when 
Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. Imagine that Anthony goes over to Steve and punches him in the face. Steve's like, what's going on? And I walk up there and said, Anthony, you're forgiven. <laughs> you see, you would go, but Jacques, um, how can you forgive Anthony? You can only forgive Anthony if you are Steve, the one who got punched, right? But the implication here is how can Jesus go about forgiving sins unless he means every sin that was ever committed was against him, God. Anybody who does anything wrong is against the lawgiver, the ultimate judge, the owner of everybody. You see, if he can say, hey, Anthony, your sins are forgiven. The fact that you punched Steve, I'll forgive you, only means that he's the one that determines everything, the law and the authority to execute the law to anyone who breaks it. So he had to assume that he was God the moment he walked around and said, you're forgiven. Because only he would have all sins committed against him. So another example of where Jesus displayed his own godship is when people worshipped him. You see, everywhere throughout the Old Testament, angels would appear to people, and the moment the angel appears on the scene, what would they do? They would fall down and start worshipping. And the angel would always respond, stop. Because angels are not divine. They are not to be worshipped. But then we see Jesus, on the other hand. You know, he, he would show up somewhere, and somebody would fall down and start worshipping him, and he would let them. So the conclusion here is that Jesus is the God, or He is God, Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, with us. Here's another example, and the Bible's full of examples as to where Jesus implied Himself to be God. And that is when we look at the people who followed Him and knew Him. You know, if you were going to come out and say, hey, by the way, everybody, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Yeah, it's me, everybody. Thank me. <laughs> you know, if you were going to do that, you would have to do it like on TV where nobody really knows you, but they see you for the first time. They know nothing about you, so they would assume like, hey, how much truth could there be to this guy saying that he's the Messiah? But the one group of people you would not go and break the news to is your family. <laughs> hey, sis, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm the perfect one. Okay, thank you. Something wrong with you. So Jesus, he, Jesus, he did not have the problem with people following him who knew him intimately, heard all of his claims, and go like, he's right. He's right. But you and I, we go to the people who live with us, who know us, and you make that claim, and you go like, everybody goes, uh, yeah, you're wrong. So everybody that knew Jesus... They heard his claims, claims like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And they would believe it because there was something they knew about him living up close and personal that proved to them that the glory he spoke of was real for him. And so here Jesus 
is close and personal with these people and they could either believe one of three things about him. That yes, he is who he says he is. God. Or, yeah, he's totally nuts. Or, he's an excellent deceiver. He's a liar. They had to believe one of those three things. But if you consider what they had to see, they saw this man walking around performing miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead. And they thought, wow, there must be something about this guy. He's a little different, a little different, raising the dead. Then they see him not just doing signs, uh, not just doing miracles, but signs and wonders. There he is walking on the water. That'll make most people wonder. Maybe what he's claiming about himself could be true. Then, not only signs, but also wonders. Like he tells the storm to be quiet, and the storm obeys him. And, and more people going like, wait a minute, there's something to this guy. But then those who followed him would go to the Old Testament, and they'll read through all the prophets, Isaiah. And they read through all of the prophet, prophecies of the coming Messiah, and they go, this miracle worker, this guy that creates, that does signs and wonders, walks on the water, tells the storm to be calm, raises the dead and heals the sick. This one here, whom we are close to, he's, he's currently fulfilling every single one of the Old Testament prophecies. You see, that prophecy I read to you a little earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that 700 years before Jesus was born. It says he will be born from a virgin. And Jesus fulfills that prophecy. But he fulfilled all the prophecies. And so there's, there's hardly a chance for you to find this man who fulfills all Old Testament biblical prophecies, walks around performing signs, wonders, miracles, without concluding that, yep, chances are, odds are, <laughs> he's the real deal. He is God with us. These men were so vested in that idea now that they've known him, walked with him, heard him, and seen what happened, that they were willing to even give up their life for that truth. Nobody dies for a lie. But here they all died, being persecuted, burnt in oil, crucified upside down, decapitated, because they bought into that truth. To them it was more true than life itself. So we see all these biblical reasons as to why Jesus is God with us. I mean, if you, just, if you can wrap your mind around the idea that the almighty king of the universe is with you, it would change everything about your life. That's why the Christmas message is so powerful. God with us. Now, number two, how was God with us? That's the question we want to know. How is God with us? Us. You see, this great and mighty God has decided to put Himself with us. How? By, becoming, by coming alongside us, by joining us. He chose to keep company with you and I. Throughout history, however, God revealed Himself to humans throughout the Bible, from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. You see God revealing Himself in different ways. But 2,000 years ago, God revealed Himself in a radically different way than He usually does in the Old Testament. 
he reveals himself as a little baby in Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, we see God revealing himself in ways that caused men to tremble, to have nervous breakdowns just about and to fall down on their knees and fall down on their faces and hide from him every time he revealed himself. Think about how absolutely terrifying God seemed to Job when he revealed himself to Job. He revealed himself to Job, the Bible says, in a tornado, a whirlwind, and a hurricane. So when you, uh, many of us have not yet seen a tornado. We haven't experienced a tornado. Some of you may have. But most of us have seen the effects of a tornado as we watch the news and we see the dilapidated, broken down, crushed cities that lay in the wake or lie in the wake of a tornado, right? It destroys buildings. It flattens communities. It rips out foundations from the ground. It flattens forests. So can you imagine what Job saw when God revealed himself to Job as a tornado. He saw something that was overpower, overpowering. It was destructive. He saw something that was completely unstoppable. He saw something to run from and to hide from. Now, think about how God revealed himself to Abraham. That was interesting. God revealed himself to Abraham in a fire. It was like a furnace that hovered in midair and just floated around the room in between the pieces of cut-up animals that Abraham had put down. That's kind of strange. A consuming ball of fire right in front of you just hovering. This is how God revealed himself. Well, think about when God revealed himself to the children of Israel as a pillar of fire. They were in the desert. There were a couple million of them. And this pillar of fire gave them light and heat. But it was a terrifying thing to get close to. You see, it wasn't a little candle with a flame. No, it was a massive pillar of fire. I remember about 12 years ago, so Tina and I went on vacation before Robert was born. And we went to Canada went up there as a romantic trip, and you know, in your mind, you have the idea that you're going to get into one of these beautiful coaches in a train, and we're going to drive up, go up there with a train. And um, <laughs> Tina had high heels on. She's perfectly dressed, you know, because this is all we've seen in the movies. So we go downtown to catch a train. Wow. That's not what we found. I've never smelled more like urine. Not <laughs> it, was, it was disgusting. But Anyway, we took the train up there all romantically. And when we got there, we went to see the, the falls. Some of you may have seen the Niagara Falls. And as we were standing down, Tina and I standing down at the bottom of the Niagara Falls, I was looking up and I just saw this overpowering, overwhelming mass of water crushing down, unstoppable. And I thought, imagine that was not water, but that was fire. And I thought, that's possibly close to what the Israelites saw when God revealed himself to them in a pillar of fire that stretched up into heavens. There it was in the sky, 
sustains itself, lights up, gives enough light for millions of people and warms them all up in the middle of the night in the desert. Just this massive blazing fire. This was God revealing himself to the children of Israel. You see, my point is, every time God ever showed up, it was terrifying. Now, however, now that God has revealed himself as a baby, Jesus, dependent upon Mary, we seem to treat God like he's no longer terrifying. We seem to treat him like he's different than the God who we saw reveal himself to everybody else. He's no longer awesome. He's no longer majestic. He's no longer sovereign and all-powerful as he was in the past. So I have a question for you. Do you, during Christmas time, diminish your awe of who God is because it's baby Jesus? Do you diminish your reverence, your adoration of a mighty and terrifying God now that He has come to us as a dependent infant? You see, we tend to sometimes buy into the feelings of Christmas, but not the spiritual reality of what just happened there. It was God with us, Emmanuel. The same God Job saw is now with you. The same God Abraham saw is now with you. The same God the Israelites stood before is now with you. Think about the time when Moses asked to see God's face. And God said to him, no, you can't see my face. Anybody who ever sees my face has to die. But what I'll do for you, Moses, is I will put you in the cliff of a rock, put my hand over there, cover you, I will walk past you, and then when I'm past you, I'll take my hand away, and you'll be able to see me from behind for a moment. That's exactly what happened. And then Moses, because he saw God, he started radiating like the sun, so bright they couldn't look at him. They had to cover his face until the glory went away. This is God revealing Himself, who He is. And now, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate cute little baby Jesus, and we're extremely sentimental towards, and we just love it because family comes over. When in fact, there's something so powerful about that moment, that event. And that the power in it is that God decided to come and be with you. So we conclude this point with a question. Why did God come to us as a baby when before that God came to humans as a tornado, a hovering flame, and a, pill a pillar of fire? Why did He come to you and I as a baby? Because before the birth of Jesus, God came to humans as God. That's why He came as a hurricane, as a tornado. That's why He came as a pillar of fire because he was God and people trembled. But now in Jesus, he came not just as God, but God with us, frail humans. He came to be with us. That's why he revealed himself in a palatable way 
to humans instead of the way he did in past. So now we looked at God, who is Jesus, with, and now we're going to look at us. God is with us. The question is, who is us that God is with? You see, here is something very obviously exclusive. He didn't say God is with everybody. He said, no, no, God is with who? Us. Who's referred to in us? I have a couple of suggestions for you to consider, and the first is, exegetically speaking, when you look at the actual statement penned down, you have to go to the author's intention to understand what was meant. In order to find the meaning of every verse or any verse in the Bible, you have to discover it through discovering the intention of the author when he penned it. Okay, so, who penned it? Well, we realize that the author's original intent in referring to us when penning that statement was to the Jews who, who were awaiting their Messiah. All the Jews who were reading the Old Testament, the Torah, and they were looking for Him who would be born of a virgin, the awaited Messiah. They were us. That was being referred to. Number two, now we also realize that Jesus came for the Jews, but not just for the Jews. He came also for the Greeks. And He also came for the Gentiles and for all those who were afar off. And in the Great Commission, He sends us out and He says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all ethnicities, all people groups. Is part of us. God with us. Number three, the third suggestion as to who us is referring to is more specifically to the lowly. They were the us. The weary. The poor in spirit. The humble. Those who have nothing to offer, just like those shepherd boys who had nothing to offer. Those who were lowly, poor, weary, humble, poor in spirit, weary and humble, they were the us. Those who, like the shepherds, who were the lowest ranking humans in society, they come to Christ with nothing, just like you and I. You see, to come to Christ, all you need is nothing. But many do not have that. They come with something. Many accept to be or expect to be accepted by Jesus because they're a good person. They see themselves to be a valuable person. Jesus saw enough value in them that he would come and die for them. They see themselves as being superior morally in some way, quali being qualified to be accepted in Christ. Or they see themselves to have good intentions at least. At least God knows my heart, you know. They see themselves to have sufficient good intentions for God to accept them into Christ. Or they see themselves to have done enough good deeds. But the fact is, the truth is, to come to Christ, God demands that you come poor in spirit. Spiritually bankrupt within yourself. Nothing to offer. Otherwise, I wouldn't need Christ. Poor in spirit. It's the only possible way to come to Christ. Broken with a contrite heart. 
humble and empty-handed. It's the only way you and I can come to him. These are the us God was referring to that he's with. The fourth suggestion I want to give to you as to who the us was that he is with, and this is most specifically the us of whom the Father gave Jesus to save and then to marry. God the Father gave Jesus the group called us in this verse to save through the cross and then to marry Take her as his bride. The Bible says that everywhere, but I'll read a few verses to you. John 6, 37. It says this, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. John 6, 37. John 6, 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everything that has given me, I will lose nothing. Everything he has given me, I will lose nothing. So two things are true here. God gave Jesus the group called us, represented in us. He gave them to Jesus to save. And no one who comes to him, he will cast out, but he will receive them. And then it says... He will not lose one of them. Every single person God gave to Jesus will be saved. And Jesus will not just save them, but he will not lose one. John 17 verse 2 says, He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. It's the apostle speaking. He says, Jesus, God, he gives eternal life to each one you gave him. He doesn't try to give them eternal life. He gives it to them. Jesus came to actually save His people from their sins. He didn't come to try and save anybody, possibly save them from this. No, He actually came to save His people from their sin. John 17, 2, He gives eternal life to each one you gave Him. John 17, 9 says, I ask on their behalf. This is Jesus praying. He says, I ask on their behalf, Father. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you have given me, I ask of you. You see, there is no scriptural doubt of the fact that Christ's bride was given to him by his Father. And that, and that bride is whom Jesus came to save eternally. That is who the us refers to in the scripture, God with us, Emmanuel. So what I want to do is, I would like to make all these three points, God with us, practical and applicable to you and me today, so that this Christmas can be the most, the, the, the most real Christmas has ever been. It's getting real, like they say, right? <laughs> this Christmas has to be real. We might as well end 2020 with a real good Christmas. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Because through it all, we know God is with us. So I want to end this off by starting off with God. Who He is to us in an applicable way. You see, if God is really with us, then some of us need to take the limitations off of life. 
truthfully, if you knew that this Almighty was actually with you in this life, then exactly what would the limitations be? What could limit this life to a person who has the Almighty, King of the universe, with them? The only limitation is with us, not with Him. So my point is just, if you know that God is with you, there would be no limitations. Stop living like the Almighty is not with you. Start living peacefully because He is. Start walking confidently because He is. You see, the Apostle Paul, um, he taught that real Christian love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But because we forget that God is with us, we believe nobody and nothing anymore. We'll read the Scriptures like we read the newspapers. Ah, all fake. It's all fake. <laughs> we believe nothing. We believe no one. We have no more hope, and we cannot endure a thing. We fall apart the moment there's a degree of threat. Because we forget that God is with us. So do you know why Paul lived like that and most people don't? It's because he knew that he knew that he knew God was with him. Everybody else doubts it. If you are becoming more and more cynical, it is simply because you forgot or you do not realize who is really with you. That's why you're more and more cynical about life. If, in fact, you've given up hope in the promises of God, the only reason why you would have given up hope in the promises of God is because you think, yeah, the promises are here, but He's gone. Because you no longer believe that God is with you. If you look back on 2020 and no longer have courage for the future, no longer have hope for the future, no longer see your way, see yourself enduring the future, it is because you do not really believe the Almighty God is with you. If that is you, then I have a call to action today. If you are saying, Jacques, I'm the guy who's cynical over life right now. I'm the person who longer, no longer expect the promises of God. I'm the person who look at 2020 and, hey, once bitten, twice shy. I don't know what to do with 2021. I'm not expecting anything. As a matter of fact, I don't see my way through the next year if it had to go the same way. If that's you, the call to action is simply this. Repent. Be more like Paul. Live with peace. Walk with confidence. Have hope in your heart, not because of a government or a culture or the strength of a dollar, but rather because of what has been written in scriptures. So my call to action there is repent and be like Paul. Number two, let's apply with God with us. Look at what God did to be with us. Look at what God went through to be with you. He left His glory in heaven, all of His privileges, all of His rights, and He was birthed into humanity through a virgin, now an infant, a baby dependent upon humans, the ones He came to save. Everything that he gave up, and then he gives up his life on the cross to do what? To be with you. Look at everything that God did to be with us. My question is, what are you doing to be with him? 
Are you too busy? Are you too offended? Are you too lazy? Are you too hurt? Are you too cynical? Are you too ambitious in this life to be with Him? Exactly what absorbs your time and prevents you from making time to be with Him? Exactly what is that important that it will absorb your entire day that you have no time for Him to be with Him? Exactly what distraction is so important that you simply cannot ignore that phone call right now in order to be with Him? What distraction takes such precedent that you cannot ignore it in order to focus on God? Exactly what has captured your desires to the point where you would prefer to be elsewhere rather than with Him? What has hooked your desires and what has your desire grown into for what has you, have you desired now so much that you would not be able to give it up in order to be with Him? I'd like to say it this way. Whatever it is, or whatever it is going to cost you to be with Him is nothing in comparison to what it cost Him to be with you. God with us. In a working definition, it means... What are we doing and what price are we paying and what are we giving up in order to be with Him? Finally, number three, God with us. How would we apply that in our lives? You see, if God is with you, hear me out, then your lukewarm, half-hearted response to God is simply not a rational response. It is an irrational response. It is simply not a normal thought. It is an abnormal thought. It is simply not sane. It is insane <laughs> to think that God is with us and we treat it as common. No rational, sane individual would consider these truths and then live for God with half, a half-hearted effort or a lukewarm heart. If God is with you, then your indifference and your apathetic response to God's work is not a sane thought, but an insane one. Not a normal thought, an abnormal thought. It's not a, it's not a coherent response. It's an incoherent response. It is not a reasonable response. It's an unreasonable response. It is not logical. It is illogical to say, yeah, God with us, cool. All right, now let me go about my day and then next Christmas we'll check up on Jesus again to see how things are going. You see, for us to live that kind of life, it's incoherent, it is not sane, it is not normal. But it's normal to the person who doesn't realize what the word, the name Emmanuel really means. Somebody once wrote this, and I quote, Anybody who ever met Jesus Christ only had one of three responses. They were either terrified and wanted to run from Him. They wanted to kill Him or stone Him to death. Or they fell down on their knees, worshipped Him, and gave Him everything they had. Those are the only three responses people have ever had to Jesus throughout time. Any other relationship that anybody might have with Jesus is irrational. You either run from Him, try to kill Him, or you worship Him and give Him everything you got. 
but you cannot have a lukewarm, half-hearted, apathetic relationship with Him. Yet strangely, that fourth place that we don't see anywhere in Scriptures or anywhere in the life of Jesus, nobody around Him had an apathetic response to Him. Every one of those three responses were radical. And yet today, that very same God with us is now head of a church who seems to be very apathetic, very lukewarm, half-hearted. For most part, around the world, it's just rote. And so as I said in the beginning, let this Christmas not be the same as every other Christmas, where it's just a sentimental feeling or a great memory of family and good times. But let it be something real to you and I, knowing that it means God with us. The greatest event that ever took place in the history of humanity. And let us now respond honestly. Let us respond truthfully. Let us respond entirely. Let us respond radically to this truth that He is now with us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father.